Female artists do not get the same level of support. The female artists that I know of have reinvented themselves 20 times more than the male artists. There's a poor representation of all different types of women in music. Seek out strong women to align yourself with. We have to accept that there is a certain level of social responsibility that we do have for each other. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner the music industry can change. Hi, and welcome to Control with Chelsea Wilson, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women in the music industry who have taken control of their music and control of their careers. In this episode, I'm speaking to CEO, board director, and artist manager, Catherine Harrity. Cutting her teeth in A&R, Catherine's career began working for major labels Mushroom Group and Warner. Stepping out, she established Catherine Harrity Management in 2006, building a roster of artists and producers including Adelita, Jebediah and Eskimo Joe. A sought-after voice in the music industry, she has served as board director for organizations such as Support Act and the Community Broadcasting Foundation and is an ambassador for APRA AMCOS. After serving as Executive Director of the Association of Artist Managers since 2019, Kath recently moved into a new role as CEO of the Australian Music Centre. In this conversation, I asked Kath about her time in A&R and if the art in artist and repertoire still exists. I asked Catherine how artists can survive during the COVID-19 pandemic and how artists can navigate tricky interpersonal relationships. We also spoke about imposter syndrome, her take on confidence, and what the next steps are for the Australian music industry. This is my chat with Kath Harrity in Control. You're a cold heart killer, there's no magic I can see. You are not an Hi Kath, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks Chelsea for having me. So excited to talk to you. Um, I was hoping we'd meet face-to-face to have this conversation, but given we are now in our seventh week of Melbourne isolation lockdown, we're online today, but I can still see you, which is lovely. How are you going? Um, I'm holding up. I'm holding up okay. Uh, thank you for asking. I think it just depends on the day and it depends on the circumstances that play out during the day. So some days are really great. Some days I, I, I you know, um, I walk away feeling really satisfied and uh, very fulfilled by everything that I've achieved and all of the great stuff I've been able to do with the family. And then other days I feel like I've just been chasing my tail. I love it how you said walking away, like you're walking from one side of your house to the other (laughs) with the sense of achievement. (laughs) And that is what we're doing, let's face it. (laughs) Yeah, it is a really difficult and strange time and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where we land kind of at the end of this. But I'd love to kind of go back a little bit in your history and just talk about your time in A&R. This has just been such a male-dominated space for decades. I read that you said you broke in after being interviewed for an assistant role. What do you think you said in this interview that got you over the line? Well, I was kind of lucky enough at that time to be recommended for this particular role, and it was an assistant A&R role at Warner Music, and it was working with um, the very famous A&R guy, Michael Parisi, at the time. And he was working out of the Melbourne office, was looking for an assistant, and um, I was desperately looking for a break to get into music. I couldn't have thought of anything else that I really felt passionately about and that I wanted to do with my life. And I felt that my connection to music and um, that emotional connection that I have with music was really propelling me to want to actually create a career for myself um, in some way. And I had a, a th- I think it was a really long interview with him in the then Melbourne office of Warner Music when they were based out of West, West Melbourne. And I remember feeling like, you know, it was a really positive and wonderful interview. And then some months later, um, I, I started the role. I got the role, started the role. And um, it was in the very late 90s, so 1998. And we were still working with really big hardware, computer hardware. 
And I remember they didn't quite have a desk for me at that point and they didn't have quite have a computer for me either. So I used to take my notepad into Michael's office and he would, um, you know, r- recite all the things that, you know, he wanted to do and I would take lots and lots of notes and then I would trundle off back to wherever space they'd managed to shove me into in that building and I would go off and just make it all up as I went along. Um, It was the most exciting time. I was very, very lucky. And from there I got um, my break with him um, to become an A&R manager when we moved to, to the newly formed Festival Mushroom Records. And that was a really important time for me I think you know it, it it influenced and informed very you know very many elements of the way that I do my work with my artists now and um, we worked with a great team it was a small team in an independent label um, and a small team when I mean small team at the time we're talking about 60 people in a company and now that would probably be considered quite you know, medium size um, mm-hmm. now in our current state of affairs. But um, we really cared about our artists. We worked very um, closely together from department to department. We really thought about strategy and planning for an artist. We worked very closely with our artist managers and uh, we had a lot of heart which is something that, you know, sometimes I feel can be a little bit missing in our current state. I mean, do you feel like the art of A&R has got a little bit lost over time? I mean, the landscape's changed so much from, you know, particularly back in the the 70s, 80s, I mean, I guess 90s as well, where labels would sign an artist with this idea that they would develop them over a course of records. You know, no one expected David Bowie's first album to sell. It was, you know, a long long-term plan are they signing artists only if they have a certain amount of online Facebook followers or if they've won an, a television contest what's the kind of current role of A&R look like well I think it's 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 evolved over time I think when um, you're talking about the traditional A&R person um, that person was probably a producer to be fair back in the day uh, someone who would work in studio and help and work with an artist over many, many months to develop a sound, it, it, it's, it's evolved over the years. It's, it's become m- much more of um, a role that involves, I guess in some ways, delegation and facilitation. So there is that creative element to it still, I think, where A&R people will work with an artist in that creating music space and helping them to develop and curate. But I think it's much more than that now and has been much more than that for some time um, where you're almost working as the internal artist manager within a record label if you work in a record label. You're dealing with different teams of people and you're helping to really facilitate the process of an artist's release from really the creation of a recording through to the release of that recording. So back in in that late 90s period when you first started in A&R, I mean, this was still that kind of golden era of CD sales. Yeah, we could we could really see it. I mean, I, I remember very much in the first couple of months of starting in my job with Michael at Warner, I remember standing down in the underground car park with a bunch of people and we were having this very conversation and, you know, right right now recounting that conversation, it seems so archaic and ridiculous. You know, we were talking about um, Napster and, you know, o- online, illegal on- online downloads and things that at that point were considered sort of fringe and now look at where we're, we are sort of 20 years later it's everything, you know, that that digital space is, is everything for us. Whereas there was a real resistance, I think, at that time to see that there was going to be a transition and then there was going to be an evolution um, or a revolution um, and in the way that we, you know, we listen to and we, and we appreciate music. Um, 
I remember for seeing it then. I, I remember thinking it. You know, we were we were celebrating. I think it was the big Alanis Morissette release post Jagged Little Pill. The one after that, I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. It was it was you know a relatively big success, and I remember you know the record label making a really big deal out of it. We had this huge party, you know, a huge party on a you know went on a bus to a venue and <laughs> DJ Amazing. and drinks and the whole bit and everybody was super excited and I just started it was like the dream you know parties music it was just all you know fantastic and um it was very easy to to feel in the back of my mind like we were experiencing something that was coming to an end that we were seeing that this was not the peak but it was the downward slide and do you think the music industry in particular, the recording industry, has learned to kind of look forward and to kind of try and encounter these trends? Or do you think we're in exactly the same position as before and vulnerable to any change at any moment? Well, I think it's all it's all a bit um, dependent on who it is that you're working with. Because um, I guess like in, in, in any industry, you've got certain elements of the industry that trailblaze and then certain elements of the industry that run behind. And I think that we probably have the full gamut of that in the recorded space, in the record label space. But I've got a really, really um, soft spot for, you know, for that time and those labels and um, being a part of those labels was was really special um, for me. And it really helped me to understand the mechanics of everything from recording, just, you know, real analogue recording when people were using tape, like half-inch tape and two-inch tape, right through to that transitionary period into Pro Tools. That was a really huge time. And I learned a lot being just sitting in studios with bands and artists, just watching them record, talking to each other, listening to producers, the whole process to me was so magical, you know, absolutely magical. And it was being at the coalface of that creation of that recording to me and in some ways still is one of maybe two really key reasons that still make me excited inside about music. So as an A&R director, what does it take or what did it take for you to go, that's the band or that's an artist that I want to sign? It just feels so risky in terms of making that recommendation to a company you should invest and spend in this artist because you believe that ultimately they're going to resonate with people, but it's still a business choice. You're saying this band's going to sell records. You know, I know they call Clive Davis and people like that the golden ear. You know, how do you hear um, something within a band to say that's the band? I think over time it became um, a very unconscious number of things that would just sort of click behind, you know, sort of like in the back of your mind, Think certain things would click in and you would go, that's it. A, a lot of it too was based on gut instinct um, and I think is still based on gut instinct. It's feel. Um, it's that indescribable thing when you see um, a, a musician um a musician perform and they just transcend. There's something about their the whole presentation from you know the song um, and the performance to the way that musician looks and the way that they appeal to you and the way they speak to you that you click into and gives you that feeling, you know, and that feeling then becomes a series of conversations and it's almost like courting developing a relationship you know do I want to work with this person are they um are we a good match you know is 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 my Mm -hmm. um my values the same as your values can we trust each other it's all these things you think um it's just as simple as maybe seeing a musician and going well will they sell units by the way I hate that word too um but it's it's more than that it's it's a series of you know, other things, right down to trust and and sharing values, which I think is sort of really at the heart of a lot of it as well. Good songwriting, obviously, is very important. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the songwriting is is mm. so crucial, so important. Um, yeah, it's at the heart. Yeah. Of it. You don't have that talent or, you you know, you aren't a, gr- a great songwriter, then the rest of it can be there, but you, you really have to reverse engineer it, um, so to speak. Forming and maintaining excellent relationships with artists has just been such a huge part of your career and you moved into management, which felt like a, a natural fit for you. Being an artist manager is just one of the most demanding roles in the music industry and I think a completely unique role compared to any other industry in the world. That manager and artist relationship is closer than almost any other relationship I think besides maybe marriage but it almost is like a marriage. It's a musical marriage and when those relationships fall apart between artists and managers it can just you know really destroy people's lives and I mean you see in the media cases like Guy Sebastian's big fallout with his management and there's so many stories of of that relationship but how do you manage the relationship with your artists so that you still have some sort of degree of emotional separation so you don't completely lose yourself within somebody else's career even though their career is what you're paid to prioritize Mm. I I've kind of learned over the years that you should um, commence a relationship the way that you intend to see it through, and I think that's really the key to all this is knowing from the very beginning what you're willing to give, um, what they're willing to give, whether you again whether you share similar values, whether you think you can develop a level of trust, whether you think there can be a level of authenticity and honesty in the relationship um, because there'll be times where, you know, for various reasons there might not be able to be that that level of authenticity and honesty. And, you know, I think as when you've had a relationship too in, in an artist-manager sense for such a long time as I have with some of my artists who have been managing or working with in various ways for 20 years or more, um, the relationship changes over time as well and it goes through all sorts of peaks and troughs. It's very much like any other really close relationship and I liken it to a marriage. I think it's a very good way of describing it. And you go through all the same problems and issues and challenges that you would in a marriage except you're also sharing this really tight business relationship as well and you're priorities within that relationship um, are very, very strongly centred around the business side of things and strategy and being creative within those parameters. Um, So, yeah, I I think it is very, very difficult uh, to be and maintain a functional relationship consistently in that kind of close situation for years and years and years, I think it's inevitable that you'll go through ups and downs and that sometimes you'll feel you can be more honest than others. And I think that's natural and it's it's being it's, you know, it's part of being human as well. Yeah, I think with expectation expectation management must be such a huge part of the role. You know, how do you manage the sort of emotional ups and downs with artists? Oh, it's massive. Expectations and expectation set, setting and also um, managing those expectations can be a massive, massive part of my everyday life and trying to be clear in my communications in that and trying to live by those objectives and trying to actually make those crystal clear from my end so that there's no misunderstandings of what we're trying to achieve together. And I think it's the two-way street as well. I think um, I spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time with, particularly with artists when you first start working with them, really trying to get to the root of what it is that they want. And that's not just one or two conversations. That can take six to 12 months to understand. It's as you get to understand the personalities that you're working with. And that isn't isn't sort of a, a a quick a quick thing. It's it's really a progressive thing, um, and I think it takes commitment from the artist manager, but it also takes a lot of commitment from the artist as well. You're in a two way relationship, so it's got to be 
both of you together, learning to trust and understand and also get to the root of what those needs are and expectations are. And then from a manager perspective, being honest with yourself as as a manager and going, can I deliver this? Is it possible? Is it realistic for me? And do you ever experience that imposter syndrome? It's such a massive thing to undertake the responsibility of, of somebody's career and ultimately the pressure placed on you with someone's hopes and dreams. I mean, no wonder the expectation management is so important. Oh, absolutely. 100% I've experienced imposter syndrome and I still do. I think every week of my life there's a circumstance that I'll stumble, stumble across and the expectation may be that because I have been in this role for a, a fair, a fairly long amount of time that I'll have an answer to how to approach every single situation that comes my way. But the reality is you're often faced with situations which, you know, still even now I've, I've never experienced before, um, dilemmas that, you know, involve some time to work through and meditate on and potentially ask other people for their opinions as well. Um, Really awkward situations and sometimes really dangerous situations as well um, that you have to, you know, that that can actually end up being life or death situations. So people often think that because we're in contemporary music, it must be all really fun and light and joyful, but there's actually some really serious issues that, you know, particularly as music managers, I know many people will identify with that are are really heavy that you have to work through with your artist. Um, And I can honestly say I've probably experienced nearly every single one of them at some point or another in in my working life. Um, So it's definitely definitely not a a role for the faint-hearted, I would say. (laughs) Mental health is such a huge priority for the music industry um, and it should have been for a long time, but only now we're really starting to have conversations around artists and also industry workers, but particularly artists dealing with alcoholism and mental health. It's almost like as an artist manager, it wouldn't hurt to also have a degree in psychology. Absolutely. I think having a degree in psychology would be extraordinarily helpful um, uh, in any role that you, you play within, you know, within the, the behind-the-scenes elements of the music industry, even as an artist. I think if you're an artist working in in a band with several others, there's a whole series of dynamics um, mm-hmm. and, you know, relationship shifts and control and power shifts that happen within those, you know, those sort of ecosystems, those um really close, close relationships are always going to breed ups and downs as well. So, um, again, for me as an artist manager, you know, from a mental health perspective, the, the best thing that I think I've, I've ever done is actually having the ability to go through the AAM's Give Me Shelter mental health intervention program, which has given me mental health first aid training. That first um, mental health first aid training is actually incredible. I found it really, really helpful. And I've actually been able to reflect on situations that I've been faced with as an artist manager with my artists in that space and think about how I would have approached them differently if I'd had that basic framework to work within. It's interesting you touched on how artists are, they're often managers of their own band. So yes, you might be their artist manager, but then underneath the artist or your direct contact, which is often the singer in the band often, is kind of a subsidiary leader of the people they pull in, be it that their engineer or their their bass player, their, their drummer. How do you support your artists to be able to be great leaders of their own team? It's, it's a really challenging one. This one is a really difficult one because it, I think it depends upon the artist or the band that you're dealing with and the relationships that they have in play with each other. Sometimes I would advocate for completely stepping away from having anything, you know, deeply, any deep sort of tinkering within 
the structure of the relationships of a, of a band. Um, but then there have been, you know, equally other circumstances where I felt like I've had to intervene, you know, in a really deep way within a band. But it's it's only really when they allow you to be that person within their structure because sometimes they just don't want that from a manager. That's not what they're requiring or they're wanting. And sometimes they want a lot of it, a lot of support and a lot of personal kind of um, coping strategies and or strategies they can implement, you know, with each other within their own structure. So it's all very, very dependent. I've, I've probably dealt with both extremes as well. You know, it is, uh, it, it, it does feel like when you don't have that close, you know, really close inner relationship with a band where you're really intimately involved in in and understanding their relationships with each other and, and having the ability to intervene, you feel a little bit removed from it, I think. You can feel a little bit sort of not invested in a way that, that maybe you'd like to be or, you know, I've, I've found that anyway. It must be difficult because ultimately if there's internal politics within a band structure that you're not privy to but it's affecting the band's output and performance, well, then that oh, yeah. is that is affecting you as a manager. How do you think musicians can improve in terms of that interpersonal management? These are the things that aren't part of music degrees. You know, we don't go to music industry conferences and talk about how can we have good conversations between ourselves around songwriting splits? How do we talk about what realistic outcomes are? You know, bands split up over things such as, you know, the front person who wrote the song is 100% of songwriting royalties, they're buying a house, some of the other bandmates are still working part-time at JB Hi-Fi, those yep. kind of things, yep. you know. There's touring artists versus recording artists. The touring artists are upset. They're not the ones booked to play on the album. You know, how, how can we improve as musicians to be able to manage our, our fellow musicians in our projects? I, I just have to mention I just recently saw the Go-Go's documentary and that was a fascinating, painted a fascinating picture of, of an art, a, a group of people in in a band and their evolution from a relationship perspective when it comes to things like songwriting and performance and splits and payments and who got what and how and relationship with their manager and how that ended and then their movements to a bigger manager and how that was disappointing. And it, it was really, really interesting because... Um, for me, it sort of brought it really, it was really close to home for me because I, I do feel like my job as an artist manager is actually to empower my artists to be better and to have a deeper understanding of all parts of their creative and, and also business lives. It's my job to give them as much information to make as best an educated decision about every element of their career that I can. Um, and it's not my job to infantilise my artist and actually try and over, override and overpower my artist and make the decisions on their behalf and, and treat them like children because that isn't the relationship that they should be having and so I'm there to educate I'm there to facilitate I'm there to help strategize and help them realize their vision um, as best I can I wanted to talk to you about social media which mm. has become a major part of the daily lives of artists which that would not have been the case when you started in in a and in, in the 90s you know artists used to have fan clubs and then maybe they got a website for the first time. We had the CD-ROM extra content on, on the disc. We had MySpace, Chels. Um, and then we had MySpace. <laughs> but now artists are expected to have these, you know, daily Instagram stories with this, you know, great imagery, inspirational quote. And artists are often to, referred to now as, as brands, mm. um, which is completely different skill set than kind of what we started off doing 
as as musicians. Mm-hmm. How do you advise your artists to use social media? Do you recommend they outsource social media or take it in their stride? I've seen it implemented in in all kinds of ways, but my personal opinion is that an artist has to be invested in their social media for it to be um, a real authentic success in that uh, every artist has a unique voice. It is almost impossible for me to replicate that voice, although the longer I know the artist, the better it is, uh, the more ability I have to help and assist them in that way. But I do feel that it's about isolating. There's so many different channels. There's so many different um, media you can tap into. Uh, The question is, which do you identify with and what are you going to commit to? No one should be expected to do all of them extremely well because they're different and they're unique and they appeal to different demographics um, in age, in geography, in all sorts of different respects. So for me with an artist, it's like, what do you enjoy? Do you like Twitter? You don't like Twitter. Okay, well, that's fine. We still have to run one, but it'll be an official HQ Twitter. So we'll do official HQ posts. They won't be heartfelt in the way that, say, one from an artist within their own voice would maybe put it, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. We still have it. Whereas maybe Instagram is a better fit because they're more visual in their, you know, in their... um, expression. So I think that if that's the case, that's the one you should focus on and you should put emphasis on that and you should try and build it and build it really, really well. Because I think now more than ever, you have to be genuine and authentic in everything you do. You can't fake it till you make it. Because I don't think that works anymore. And especially now with the kind of call out culture that we have, anything that potentially doesn't feel authentic to you as a brand can be so detrimental to your your overall brand and image. There's that word again, brand. Mm. It's been really a difficult time with the COVID pandemic in terms of artists being able to perform live. And there's been this huge expectation on artists to do streamed shows. What's your experience been around the streamed show in, environment? I think we have to value, we have to put a value on our creative output. I feel really strongly about that. That's something that someone would have to present me with a really compelling argument, I mean super compelling, for me to think that that creative output should not have a value added to it. An artist needs to feel remunerated for what they do. It's a part of being validated for what you're producing, for your output. Yeah. for me, that being paid for something is a part of that. It it's not a, a dirty thing. It's a it's a part of the overall process. And giving away free content has its place in certain circumstances. But I do feel that there's been a, a level of devaluing of that creative output over this time, due to the fact that. People are desperate to make a connection with their community, and I get that. Um, I understand where that comes from, but in the back of my mind, I know and we all know that at some point or another we're going to come out of this into some kind of recovery process and we're going to have some level of a new normal that we haven't quite worked out yet. And within that new normal there has to be a fairness and a value still placed on that creative content. Otherwise, how do you how do you make somebody feel positive in that way about that output? I just, for me, it's just so important. So, yes, I understand why people would stream. I don't think there should be a pressure to do it, by the way. I think it has to be under the right circumstances for the right reasons. So, you know, identity building, great. Um, you want to sort of, you know, achieve some kind of outcome or objective from it. But just doing it for the sake of doing it, no point to me. 
part of the struggle for um, many of us, and it, it, it's an ongoing struggle. I think it's going to be, you know, it's it's a part of what makes, you know, uh, I guess our our music sector so exciting and so alive. A lot of the time is this idea that there's no clear path to success. That success, you know can be reached by taking all sorts of different paths there's no right path there's no there's no correct you know process or procedure or protocol that you take to get there it just you know it can happen just through the confluence of you know good timing and good luck you know it can just be two things just the right moment the right piece of music in the right circumstance and then suddenly it can be a massive worldwide success story. But those those are more the exception rather than the rule. And I think that uh, if it happens, that's great, but it's it's not, it's the journey, I think it's taking the journey to try and get there that's the most exciting part of it. It's not the actual getting there that's the exciting part. And it's easy to say if you've seen people experience large-scale success to know that that comes with a whole other set of challenges, problems, relationship issues, money issues, you know, there's all all sorts of different challenges that pop up and it doesn't mean that that's the end of the road, you know, there's a whole other set of circumstances that need to be explored at that point. And so how can we reframe our ideas around what success looks like? Yeah, I've always believed, Chelsea, that success is what you want it to be. It's it's a personal thing. It's not, um, and it shouldn't be something that is set within our community by others. It should be, you know, yours. It should be yours and yours alone. And And I sort of have always believed if you're an artist that, wants to, strives to just release an album of your own work and that that is a success in itself and you may happen to put it up on, you know, a number of streaming services and suddenly your friends and your family can access it and if you get, you know, a number of people you don't know loving it, that's even better. But that can be that can be success, just making the music can be be the success, right? Just being able to write a song is already a huge success. You know, you know, just being able to play a musical instrument to me is a huge success. You know, the art of being really good at one instrument in your life, I think it's such an incredible thing. And what it does for you, 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 you neurologically as well, is is just so so wonderful that to me that's that would be enough you know, let alone anything else on top of that. Do you celebrate the wins, you know, those good moments? Because I feel like often mm. in the music industry and juggling multiple roles like so many of us are, whether it's you're an artist as well as an, a manager or yourself being a board director as well as an executive director as well mm. as an artist manager, you know, we just go, go, go with the to-do list all the time mm. and you finish one project and you're on to the next. Do you pause and you go, that was awesome, it's a success? And how do you celebrate those wins? Those wins, you sell, you know, you celebrate them for a moment and then you're moving on to the next thing. Okay, so that happened. We got there. Great. Clap, clap, clap. High five. <laughs> Have a glass of champagne. What's next? Um, what, what, where, where do we go to from here? Where's the next point that we want to get to um, in order to feel like we're moving, you know, moving forward? Um, so yes, I have done, and I have done with my artists celebrated those successes, but they're they're momentary. And when they happen, gosh, I love them because it just gives you a moment of reprieve as well. It's like, oh, okay, we got there. Take a deep breath, enjoy, savor the moment for a second. Okay, what's next? <laughs> I really wanted to talk to you about confidence. Confidence is often blamed for women's participation or lack of participation in music industry roles, particularly at board level and senior management roles. They say that women aren't aren't as confident and that's holding us back. Do you agree with that? And how did you get your confidence? It's an interesting one, Chelsea. I haven't really thought about it before. I think 
there might be a predisposition for uh, people to believe that um, you have to be a certain way to to climb the ladder in inverted commas or achieve levels of success. But I definitely think, and I know of many, many women particularly um, that I look up to and have great respect for that have achieved great levels of success on their own terms, being no one but themselves um, and being honest Again, that honest and, and genuine about what they do and who they are. And I honestly think, regardless of who you are, that that sort of should be at the heart of it. Um, being honest, being open, doing the right thing, being fair. Um, I think that for some reason that seems so hard to achieve, but it's just not, you know, it's just do the right thing by people, be fair in your dealings, um, try, and, try and always consider other people's point of view. Um, you might not agree with it, but you have to consider it. Trying to sort of, yeah, but be a reasonable, a reasonable and good person in the world. And, you know, it's easy to say that should get you everywhere. It doesn't. But I'd like to think that it helps. And some people don't have enough confidence to go to a gig by themselves mm. or they wouldn't feel confident sitting at a restaurant eating dinner by themselves. They wouldn't feel confident asking somebody out for a glass of wine or a coffee. So to be able to ask a band, can I manage you, takes a lot of confidence. To be able to step into an executive director mm. position is a lot of confidence. I've done a lot of personality tests in my time and had a lot of people, you know, analyse as you do when you do various things through life. And I'm actually an introvert. I'm, I'm naturally introverted. I'm much you can be a confident that. introvert though, yeah, can't you? You can, you can, but I think my propensity is to be less, is to want to be less social than more social. But I've sort of throwing myself into a world that is an incredibly social world. I mean, you know, couldn't get more social than our, you know, our industry. Um, and I think that that's been really good for me. Facing your fears, if comfort, you know, if you feel underconfident or you feel in some way you're not deserving, I think everybody's deserving. I think you have to look at what what's holding you back and what you fear and then hate hate sounding like a cliche, but facing it. I hate public speaking. I hate public speaking. And I'm in this position now where I've been put into so many situations where I've had to public speak that it's amazing how after a while you just you just have to front up and get it. You know, you have to just do it. Um, overcome, you know, overcome the thing that you fear the most. Give it a try. It might not be as bad as you think, you know? I love that. Yeah, I love that. Also, the kind of fake it till you make it, I guess. Oh, yeah, the fake it till you make it. I I kind of think we all feel like we're faking it till we make it, right? It comes back to well, that, that imposter syndrome thing, you know. I, I'm often, I often sit back and think, oh, I just don't know what I'm doing. Why do people think I know what I'm doing? I've got no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. Well, how have I managed to convince people for this long that I've got any idea? Seriously, I think that quite often and I think a lot of people do and that's the thing that probably comforts me um, the most is that I'm not the only person that probably feels that way. No, and apparently imposter syndrome hits higher achieving people more. Mm, I've heard this also from somebody who works with a, a lot of leaders, a lot of people who lead, and apparently it's a very, very big, very big um, hallmark of people in leadership positions. Which is really interesting. I think there's a few things you can do, you know, becoming becoming as much as you can an expert in your area. You know, if you know what you're talking about and you know your subject matter, mm. then I feel like that should give you some sort of confidence that you know what you're talking about. You know, I'm not confident in something I don't know anything about. <laughs> mm -hmm. no, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm with you too. I, I, 
I, I've often been placed in situations where I feel like people are having conversations that are well above my intelligence level and I'm often like, oh, okay, right. And and the thing is if if you really work at it, you can get there and and you can be on that level as well. And I, I kind of believe that. I don't think you necessarily have to be particularly bright. You just have to work hard. You know, you have to work really hard if you if you're not na- if you don't naturally have a gift that you feel you know you easily get along with people or you you know public speaking is easy for you or um, I think you have to just work hard at it um, and I I don't you know and I also do think you know being um a woman who has had other women to look up to and talk to as well you know I've had some incredible women through my career who I've been able to have confidential conversations with and who have been really helpful and really encouraging and have really helped me be able to keep on going through it all when things have gotten tough. That's brilliant. What do you think some of the best advice you've ever received is? (laughs) Um, Not actually caring what other people think. And just trusting your instincts and your gut instinct is super, super important. Again, being honest and genuine in your dealings, being fair. And, yeah, and being able to listen as well to people instead of having to talk all the time, just listening sometimes is all you need to do. I've got a couple of big questions for you. What do you think the next steps are for the Australian music industry recovering from COVID? Oh, God, I've got no idea. <laughs> Honestly, I'll be really honest. Um, I, I don't think the answers are there yet. I think we're still really in it and I think that that will become apparent probably over the next 12 months. But I think we all... F- feel the need to move that process along a lot quicker than it's actually going to move. And I understand why that is because we all need that certainty and that idea that we know what's coming. Um, But I simply think a part of being really strong and resilient at this point too is being able to admit when the answers are still not there. Um, And I think that they're not just yet. And what change do you hope to see? Oh, I'd love to see all sorts of things change, Chelsea. (laughs) Um, I'd love to see a more um, fairer, sustainable, robust career path for artists with more sustainable income streams that are more equitable. How would that look? I've got no idea. How could that happen? I have no idea. But I think we have to consider that at the heart of our ecosystem is the artist and their creative output and we have to respect that and we have to support them in whatever way we can. And that would require at this point, I think, digging deep and looking at the structure and the systems we have in place in general and how do they work for an artist and how do they not work for an artist and what needs to change. How can we change it? I don't necessarily think we have all the answers either to that, but big question. And talking about those systems and structure, I mean, the music industry is really known for having a lot of issues with sexism. And I think in this kind of post Me Too Australia landscape, there's a lot more conversations happening and, you know, quite a few call outs happening. Mm. Um, But we're still quite far away, I think, from sort of level playing field have you had to deal with a lot of sexism or how would you deal with it if you did experience that oh over the years absolutely I have um in in all sorts of weird ways um I've I've had to encounter them and also conversely have or having encountered the opposite of that lots of people holding me up and pushing me forward um so it's been a bit of both. I mean, uh, I find it really interesting, you know, listening to a lot of a lot of um, people, a lot of uh, people's stories at the moment of abuse and 
mistreatment and um, that can be both physical and psychological. And I really feel it because I've experienced that too. It's true. Um, From the time I started in music, I've, you know, had all sorts of inappropriate um, physical and psychological, you know, abuse um, that, you know, I probably just accepted. And in some ways, you know, um, it's also made me the person I am and I don't mind the person I am. It doesn't excuse the behaviour though. <laughs> Is it a better, are we in a better place than we were? Absolutely. I can't tell you how much better positioned we are now than we were 20 years ago. Um, it's just not even the same landscape. Um, and I think it's been really empowering to see so many um, so so many people coming out and supporting each other in this and doing that so publicly uh, and having all of all of the community around them. It is really scary though <laughs> to as an artist or someone working in the industry to to want to step forward and and speak publicly because there's that that fear of a backlash. You know, if I speak out, I'll never get booked again. Will I be labelled as a difficult person? Yep. And, you know, that I think that that's so brave but also very necessary. Those people help us all. I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Particularly as you worked for Mushroom and also Warner for a time, yep. did you get to meet Kylie? I never got to meet Kylie. I've got oh. to tell Though I did, <laughs> I did work on a particular album that she did um, a performance on and the session that she did this particular performance, it was um, an album called Corroboration. It was um, a collaboration between contemporary Australian artists and um, First Nations artists at the time and they came together and they, they wrote together and they did duets and some of them were covers as well. And Kylie did a song with Jimmy Little, the, the legendary late Jimmy Little Um and it was a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, it was a, 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 I'm pretty sure it was a cover of his called Bury Me Deep in Love. And I really wanted to go to that session. I can't tell you how much I wanted to go to that session. But I, I yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was down the chain, you know. There were other people, you know, further up the chain that went to that one. But I, I would have loved to have. I've heard a lot of um, wonderful things, actually, about her. I just, I really want to meet her. So it, yeah. it's within that degree of separation of like, did you meet her? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. If you, get, if you ever get to meet her. I, I'll tell you, Chelsea, the closest brush with Kylie that I ever had was when I was 15 at Target in Camberwell. That's the closest brush I've ever had with Kylie Minogue. There you go. Oh, yeah, because she was a Camberwell girl, right? Didn't she work yeah. at Blockbuster or Video Easy or one of those? No, I remember that too. Yeah, at Videobuster <laughs> or something down there. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kath, for chatting with me. It's really appreciated. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with the wonderful Catherine Harrity. You can find out more about Kath and the Australian Music Centre by checking the links in the show notes. Please subscribe to Control for future episodes, follow us on Instagram and tell your friends. You've been listening to Control. This episode was produced by Chelsea Wilson and edited by Amy Chapman with support from City of Melbourne's COVID-19 Arts Grants. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations. Until next time, please be kind to each other. This is Chelsea Wilson signing off.